This is God's word. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. For the Lord Most High is awesome, the great King over all the earth. He subdued nations under us, peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loved. God has ascended amid shouts of joy. The Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. The word of the Lord. All right, let me invite you to pray a second before we start talking about that scripture text. Our God, we look to you in this time for your presence. We ask that um, as the one who talks about yourself as the shepherd of our souls, that you would shepherd us through this time because we all are in different places and have different, different frameworks and different types of waywardness that we prefer but we all need shepherding because we're all more of a mess than we care to admit. We're all more wayward and um, frail. And we're all more of a part of stories of failure than we want to admit or want people to know. And yet your shepherding is such that we are, if we know you through Christ, we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined because you move towards uh, messy lives and broken people and you bring us home. So speak to us now through that kind of grace, even though there's, there's raw places we find ourselves this morning. And there's things as, that are parts of our lives that are, are throbbing realities, neon signs blinking in front of everything that we can't even put away for 10 seconds because they're just right there in front of us and we can't seem to let them go and they're dominating everything. Pierce through it, break into our hearts with the love that moves towards broken lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you noticed the title on the screen, it, it said uh, Advanced Prayer, Adoration. So this is a psalm or an ancient, an ancient prayer that people would um, sing together. Christians, but farther back, ancient Israel, Jewish people would come to worship and they would... This would be one of those songs, uh, one of those prayers that you say or chant together and it sort of teaches you about prayer and we're learning about prayer. I call it advanced prayer because it's not the kind of prayer where um, it's kind of at the surface level uh, opening up to God and saying, hey, help, I I need this thing, I'm in a tight spot. Um, it's not the kind of prayer that's just like, hey, thanks for that thing that happened over there. Or, um, hey, I messed up and I, I feel some need to come to you and I hope you'll find it in your heart to be merciful or forgive me. Adoration is just, it, it feels kind of like a, a more sterile, cold thing to us. It seems deeper to get into and really be behind it. 
God is amazing and great and awesome and I'm just going to start singing because of that? It seems more difficult to enter into. It seems like that it must come from a deeper experience of God to truly be able to, you know, get up and, you know, I'm going to sing, God is awesome. You know, the Bible pictures, the Bible is okay with picturing God as someone who wants us to be, all right, wants us, that's a competition today, I'll up the ante, I'll get, I'll get a little louder. Um, so God, the Bible's okay with this picture of God, you know, having all of us come before him, bow down, and, and sing aloud together that God is awesome, that we'd be kneeling and praising him for his awesomeness all the time. There's pictures like that, not just in the Old Testament, in Revelation chapter 5. This is towards the very end of, of the Bible that you guys have on your seats. In chapter 5, verse 13 of Revelation, it says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying... To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. You and I aren't so sure that we want to join in the clapping. And there's a lot of reasons behind that. And I I want to suggest that to get into this, get into why it's so hard, but also how you might get there, you really have to kind of enter into three things. Let's call them three narratives, the narrative of failure, the narrative of perfection, and the narrative of, of uh, descent, descent. The narrative of failure, first of all. Part of the problem with us kind of going, I don't know, adoration, how do I drum that up? Where does that come from? Part of the problem is, is that we exist entirely all the time in and amongst a narrative of failure. We the best framework that we can imagine to put God into is a narrative that is flawed. And so anyone that you know or that you see or that you experience as being great, any greatness or adoration narrative that comes along, you immediately start imagining and believing that you can find some chink in the armor of that greatness. You can poke holes in that supposed great person. We roll our eyes at um, stuff like Belieber infatuation, right? Justin Bieber and the crowds, or go further back, you know, go to your, whatever your generation is. Is it Beatlemania? Um, infatuation. And we look at that as we kind of say, well, that's what young people do. That's a sort of undeveloped psychology to just kind of get into this, like join the crowd, put on the t-shirt and start cheering and, and adoring someone, we kind of go, eh, I don't know. I mean, and it's, it's proved right. I mean, Justin Bieber, isn't he just a guy driving a Lamborghini and going to jail and getting a get out of jail free card? Isn't he just a kind of delinquent when it all comes down to it? We can't imagine a truly deserving target of unquestioning adoration. We just can't usually grasp that. And so like that question of the week that I had uh, last week, you know, we, we, we tend to frame it and think of it like God, the God of the Bible, isn't he just some needy being that he's always wanting us to praise him and give him glory? That sounds a little needy to us. You know, we're, we're already poking holes in it. Um, 
And the Bible gives us the reason. It's because we're part of a narrative of failure. The Bible says this narrative of failure came in pretty soon in the Bible's story. You know, you kind of flip through and you get right there at the beginning. And, and, and in chapter 6, we read this ominous portrayal of where this perfect good world that God said, it is good, within, a, within you know, five chapters it says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. It had become. It didn't start that way. And that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. I just, it never gets old hearing that. I mean, it's just <laughs> only evil all the time. Every inclination. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. And there we have God grappling with the narrative of failure. And right from the beginning, it seems like from these times of Noah, it's the same thing that we read about later in the New Testament. You've heard in, in the chapter 3 of Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it kind kind of leaves us not being able to wrap our minds around, you know, a perfect being that deserves adoration completely. And so we're stuck. We're stuck in a flawed world with some whispers still, some echoes of perfection somewhere banging around there. But for the most part, we roll our eyes. There's also so there's a narrative of failure. There's also a narrative of perfection. I think that's involved here in getting us to be people who can sing what Psalm 47 does: is just sing adoration to God just because He's God. The narrative of perfection, and this is this narrative as we just saw as we look at the Bible and the story. The narrative of perfection goes further back than the narrative of failure. It's more true to our this cosmos and the existence and our place in this world. The narrative of perfection is more basic, even if it's not the one that we're in anymore. And when you're looking at the Bible and you're looking at these kind of places where God is grappling and being troubled with the amount of failure, the, the, the dominance of this narrative, you're, you begin to see a battle at work, a battle of narratives. And you begin to wonder as you look at this, you've got this God who's compassionate and gracious versus this failure, fragmentation world and people who don't want help. And you have God entering in and rolling up his sleeves. That's where you sort of left hanging on that verse I read in early Genesis. He's troubled with it. And you go, what's he going to do? Is he going to roll up his sleeves and enter in? Is he going to find a way? And he does. And he, he, he rolls up his sleeves and he enters in to push this failure and fragmentation narrative towards healing and restoration. And that's most of the Bible, is God's interaction with a broken world in that way. And there's a seed of hope always. If you know how the story began, as this good God creating a good cosmic existence, then you say, okay, well, the whole thing might be flawed, but there's, there's a little bit of hope, because after all, he is that good one who stands above it, who has not fallen into the failure narrative yet. He still stands outside of the failure narrative and yet is rolling up his sleeves to try to bring about healing and restoration within it. Do you see why it's in, almost inherently difficult for us? We're, in this, we're locked in this failure narrative. God 
able to be outside of it, not a part of it yet, not, fa- not a failure, not flawed. How do, you know, how, do we adore, how do we break through that barrier? Is it possible to imagine? Well, I want, I want to invite you to try. I mean, I invite, invite you to try to imagine you know, every other king, every other leader. I hope you know that every pastor has chinks in their armor, that has flaws. Every person in leadership or that, that is going to talk and, and assume that you might listen is flawed and is a failure. And you always imagine, you know, a president comes along or a leader comes along or a CEO comes along and you start going, yeah, but wait till the reporter, wait till the investigative journalism begins on this person and we'll see how he spends his money. Then we'll see how she treats her kids. Then we'll see what he does on the internet or with his phone, kind of pictures he sends, texts to people. You know, wait, just wait until the story comes out. Then we'll see where the flaws are. Then we'll poke the holes in it. Just imagine... I want you to try to imagine a king, put it in those terms because that's a very Bible way of putting things, a king who sits on a throne and, and people come before this king and they, some of them are coming to give uh, things to this king, some of them are coming with reports, some of them are being sent out of this kingly presence with instructions and with orders and, and, and laws and directives are going out from the presence of this king and people are coming and going and it's a glorious presence. And just imagine such a king that you can't ever poke a hole in. How might that feel over time to realize, there, I can't find a chink in the armor. I can't poke a hole. It just keeps being another experience of seeing this king deal with this situation or this person or this servant in a loving, gracious, just way. Maybe sometimes firm, but firm in such a good, wise way, knowing when to be firm, knowing when to be gracious in a way that I don't, and always walking away going, whoa, that was incredible. Now just imagine what might start to happen if you were around a king like that, how you might start to, you might actually start to even uh, like such a king. <laughs> you know, and our anti, sometimes we have this sort of anti-leadership thing, anti-authoritarian, you might actually start to like a king like that. You might actually start to kind of move a little bit when they're starting to sing to that king. Okay. After a while, after, a while, after seeing this king enough, you might start to just move a little bit. You, know, you might actually start to kind of join in, a little bit of clap. You might start to add your voice in. You might start to get, you might start to Enjoy the presence of this king. You might start to get excited. You might start to think all the time about this king. You might start to love this king and all the good that flows in and out of this king's presence and into your life. I don't know if that, if for 10 seconds you can start to imagine that. Um, but I don't, I don't think we last very long trying to pierce through and break into that and hold that in our minds. And that's why we need, lastly, we need the narrative of descent. Descent, like going down. The narrative of descent. Because if you're like me, you're skeptical of someone who, for anything more than 10 seconds, walks around like it's the easiest thing in the world to praise God. He's great. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God is good. God is awesome. 
you, if, if you're like me, a little too much of that and you start to go, eh, I'm not buying it. And quite frankly, I can't, the reason is because I can't hold on to that image that I just presented to you for very long myself. I can't live in that image just because the Bible tells me that's what God is like. I'm just supposed to somehow imagine that as I walk in a failed narrative. And quite frankly, if, you know, if that's what it takes, if you're just supposed to be able to conjure it up and, and live in that imagination to be one of these worshipers of this God, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make the cut. And so we have the narrative of descent, thankfully. The narrative of descent, I don't know if you look in this, in this psalm, chapter 5 has the word ascended. God has ascended amidst shouts of joy, the Lord amid the sounding of trumpets. How did God, how did God really grab your attention? How does God really try, someone like me who can't, keep that vision of a king in his head for more than 10 seconds? How does God grab me and pull me out of that and actually maybe move me into that kind of realm in a more permanent way? Does he, doesn't he, wouldn't you think he would do it by ascending and getting higher up in a more glorified existence so that we see him better and more clearly? No, he doesn't do it that way. The, um, the, the New Testament Christians started using this psalm as a, an ascension day psalm. You know, Jesus ascended. And the words we'll speak a little later, the Apostles' Creed, they detail the life of Jesus. And those powerful words, he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. There's that kingly imagery. But that's not how he grabs hold of your attention to turn you into someone who can be an advanced prayer. He does it through the narrative of descent. That's what's before that part in the Apostles' Creed. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Theologians who like to talk about the different doctrines that they can kind of pull out of the scripture and like to categorize things. And, and I got to sit around those kind of people for about four years in seminary. And one of the things that they talk about is in, in this class called Christology, the study of Christ, they talk about the humiliation and ex exaltation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ is a crucial thread of scripture. It's the narrative of descent where we see that God decided to get your attention and turn you into, into someone who can sing praise to God because he's awesome by diving into the failure narrative right into the heart of it, into the mess. I'm going to read something from a, um, a book by Philip Keller, where he describes an experience that brought this home. He talks about Jesus. He says, He was born in a crude, contaminated, mid-eastern sheepfold outside Bethlehem. This fact was driven home to me with intense and terrible force one day, deep in the desert of Pakistan, 
I was in a remote village alone when suddenly a fierce, unexpected cloudburst and electrical storm drove me to seek shelter in a tiny, mud-walled hovel. A very aged, white-bearded old man had beckoned me to come in out of the lashing fury of the storm. Bending over deeply to crawl through the low doorway, I fumbled my way into a dark and gloomy one-roomed abode. It took my eyes several minutes to adjust to the darkness within. The place was full of acrid smoke from a small dung fire burning between three cooking stoves on the earthen floor. The air was fetid with the vile odors of livestock and sheep dung. For several of these animals shared the small tiny space. In one corner, close by the fire, crouched the frail little form of a tiny teenage girl, possibly the old man's daughter. Her large, luminous, dark eyes were filled with a certain foreboding as she clutched a tender newborn infant to her breasts. The baby whimpered slightly as the girl, wrapped about only with a soiled, threadbare cotton cloak, rocked it gently in her thin arms. Not knowing Pakistani, all I could do was huddle quietly close to the smoky dung fire while the storm beat upon the mud walls. Tiny rivulets of water ran down the dark walls where the rain leaked through the shabby roof. Amid the gloom, amid the awful pungency of sheep, goat, and other animal manure, amid the appalling poverty of this poor peasant's surroundings, God's Spirit spoke to me in unmistakable, unforgettable terms. This is how I came amongst men. The revelation came to my spirit with a force equal to the most ferocious thunderclap of the storm sweeping over this remote desert village. Oh God, to what utter and absolute depths of privation and unspeakable pollution you descended to deliver us from our despair. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a, just a, a brilliant story to connect with the very entrance of Jesus into our world, the very entrance of God into our world as he rolls up his sleeves and dives into the failure narrative where we see that God doesn't ask us to, to just... Jump up and join the clapping throng as he stands aloof at a distance and says, do it, because I said so, and because that's the way it's supposed to be. I suppose he could do that. Really is the right way to be, if he is good and glorious. He doesn't do that, though. He does it after diving into the filthy mess. He comes into the world naked. He leaves the world naked. And he carries our mess on his back. The God who could have demanded, just demanded attention for you because he deserved it. Instead, he carried your failure narrative on his back. In a sense, our failure narrative uh, surrounds us so much that we can't imagine. We can't, our imagination can't pierce through it. And so what he does is he comes and enters into it to pull it away from us so that we can see clearly again and see that God really exists. 
He carries the failure narrative away and, and finds a way to rewrite the whole narrative with hope, with healing, with restoration. And so what begins to happen if you become a Christian is that actually in moments of prayer or perhaps singing or perhaps enjoying the beauty of creation or reflecting on the cross of Jesus, you hit moments where you actually believe for maybe longer than 10 seconds that your failures, your mess was really cast away as Jesus carried it with him after entering in and descending and then ascending to heaven, that in that process, he cast it away and it's no longer clouding your vision or your life. And then for sometimes more than 10 seconds, you can actually say, I want to sing. I want to I be in that kind of place. I want to be around that kind of a God who deserves it just in himself, but now he's drawn me in. He's touched my own heart so deeply that I can't help but enter in. And someday want to sing like that Revelation chapter 5 says, just join the crowd, throw on the robe and sing. I never would imagine I'd say that. That's what can happen when Jesus comes to the center of your failure narrative and sends it away and bears it on his back. Let's pray. God, I pray that amidst our own mixture of failures and beauty, of our life, the, the mixtures of hope and dead ends that we experience, that the gift of the cross of Jesus, the gift of a God who descends into our world, would come alive. We need your help in that. We pray that you would be that help, even as we move towards your table. And-